Verse 13, Acts chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and when he was laid with his fathers, saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these might be told them the next Sabbath. 
And after a meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds that were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. And let's ask his help to understand it and obey it. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday morning. We thank you for words of truth we were able to sing together. Lord, we thank you for the sound of our own voices that you gave us and gave us song in order to sing it back to you, in order to praise the creation of which you're responsible. Lord, we are blessed beyond measure. And now with our Bibles open at your feet, would you teach us? And would we be good students? And would you bless other churches doing the very same thing? We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, this is the first of three sermons recorded in the book of Acts from Paul the Apostle. We've seen him do a lot of teaching. We know he's been doing a lot of preaching. But up to this point, this is the first time we actually get to hear one of these sermons. And if you noticed as we were reading, there's some formatting changes. It's, it's not just one long paragraph uh, justified. If you've got a center margin, you might have two columns. But there's indentions because there's places in here that he's quoting Scripture, somewhere around verse 33, and then again at 41, and then right before uh, 48, right there at 47. So he's preaching, but he's... He's using the scriptures as the basis for his arguments. Uh, the verse, or the sermon rather, doesn't start until verse 16. So you've got three verses worth of setup as if to set the stage. We talked last week about how it's on us to determine what's of substance in these passages. What are the main points? What's Luke trying to tell us? And that from time to time there will be paragraphs that seem inconsequential. They're just little details to help us plot the course as to where they travel. So it sounds like mere incidentals in the first three verses or just an itinerary. They go from Paphos uh, over to Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, They go to the, the, the synagogue on Sunday. So there's some geography. tells us where they landed first. But there's also some details in here that will really come up helpful later. Uh, If you noticed, 
There's this mention of John Mark abandoning the mission and heading back for Jerusalem. That's right there out of the gate, the end of verse 13. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now later in chapter 15, this is the substance of much drama when Barnabas tries to get him back into the mission and Paul will have none of it. Now later when we read of Paul's last writings we have in the Bible, he asks for a coat because he's cold his parchments because he wants to study. He's imprisoned and bring John Mark for he's profitable to the ministry. So this gets fixed, but this is where it fell apart to begin with. We don't know why he left. We wish Luke would just tell us what was wrong with John Mark and why he fell out with Paul and then what happened in between to where they come back together again later. But Luke doesn't tell us. All we can do is speculate And you know that that's only but so useful and sometimes dangerous. But if you notice also right there in that inconsequential, detailed, boring three verses, and now Paul and his companions. That's backward than just the previous paragraph. It was Barnabas and Saul headed out on this. And now it's Paul and his companions. And we're going to see that from now on. We mentioned it last week. There's been a change in management. You ever have seen the signs that uh, maybe on a restaurant or something under new management? That's good or it's bad. It's good if you didn't like the previous management. It's bad if you did like the previous management. It's bad if it wasn't your idea. It's good if it was your idea. It represents change. And there's one little factoid that might mean that this is why John Mark left. Because he's Barnabas' nephew. And when they started out, Barnabas is in charge. But now Paul's in charge. And this is the point where he leaves. Now it could be that the next stop that they're going to make on happens to be between this very treacherous road full of bandits and robbers. Maybe he goes back to Jerusalem because he didn't join up to die on a dark road. Again, we don't know. But it is interesting Uh, that because of the way something happened, the original group is now broken up. Also, there's a mention of another Antioch here. This will come up later. There's three Antiochs in your New Testament. And the first one where the church sent out the missionaries is not this one that we read about now. This is Pisidian Antioch. There'll be another one later. And just so everyone's confused when they start studying ancient history, there were 16 Antiochs. Because one guy thought it would be awesome to name 16 towns after the man who succeeded Alexander the Great, who was Antioch or Antiochus the Great. Antioch is named after Antiochus. Uh, There was an Antiochus Epiphanes that uh, slaughtered a pig on the altar when the temple was, was desecrated. Lots of Antiochus, lots of Antiochs. We'll get through it. We'll mention them as we go. And then we're told that they go to a synagogue right out of the gate. And we're going to see this a lot because that's Paul's pattern. When he rolls into a town, he starts at a synagogue. There's a reason for that because 75% of what he needs to teach them, they already know. In a, a synagogue, these people believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They believe in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They believe in King David. They just don't believe that David's lineage 
that produced Jesus of Nazareth is actually the Messiah, the promised king from David's line. And that's the substance of this message that we're studying this morning. So when you get to verse 15, there's the setup to the sermon that begins in 16. After the reading of the law, the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sends a message asking Paul if he has something to say, to say it, verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. This is a typical first century synagogue's worship service order. There would be reading from the law, reading from the prophets, and then a free address of somewhat from any competent Jew in the building. And if word got around that, hey, that is Saul of Tarsus. That's the guy that sat under Gamaliel. That's the Pharisee among Pharisees. We've got a a celebrity speaker here. Send him a note. See if he'll deliver the explanation on the law and the prophets. So that's what they did, and this is what Paul is doing. Some have suggested that it's unnecessary to get so deep into this sermon's details because it's mostly history, and if you know your Bible, you're familiar with all these things. I disagree. I think it means we should study it harder or deeper because why would Paul the Apostle start out with history with a group of people who knew that history way better than we do, but then we're going to say, ah, oh, yeah, we know about all that. We've heard about it in the Scriptures and move on? No, there's, there's some good stuff here. We just need to dig it up, clean it up, look at it, put it back together, and I'm sure the Lord will do whatever he intended with the word he intended to tell us when this was inscripturated. I always like that word. Inscripturated truth. That's what we've got in our lap. So we're going to make an effort to recognize the organizational structure and intention of what Paul's doing. It's not the rambling of one man who on the spur of the moment had been asked to give a good word and then merely speaking with emphasis about things that he's interested in. No, he he was ready for this. He would later say that he determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified, and that's clearly evident in what he's doing here. This is what he was born to do, gifted to do, called to do, communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ who changed his life on the road to Damascus, and to do that in front of anybody, anytime, any culture, any type of culture. This is what we think Paul was so amazing for. But then again, all the credit goes to the Lord who gifted him for such things. Um, And then again, we could know all the details here. If we just decided we were going to write a dissertation on Paul's sermon, it's possible to get all the details about all the little things he talks about and still miss what he was saying. That's That's the best question we could ask ourselves this morning. What is he saying with all the stuff that he's saying? That's, that, that's really the, the big burden or cloud or, you know, bothersome poking in the back of the head of every preacher who hopes to ever do a good job. Don't just stand up there for 30, 40, 50 minutes, an hour, and ramble on about stuff, and then everybody leave and have no idea what you said. Uh, if you've ever paid attention to any of these debates that open with a space of time, you know, and... and America's favorite pastime sporting event, presidential debates. 
they're the best at saying beautifully absolutely nothing. Because if they actually say something, they're going to divide the people they hope to vote for them into two groups. Those that like what they said and those that hate what they said. So just say nothing real pretty and everybody will be happy except for the handful of people that go, wait a minute, he didn't really say anything. So Paul is saying something, but I always tell you all to mute your phones. I muted mine, but it's buzzing. Again, I still haven't replaced my watch. That's the reason why it's here. What is Paul saying with what he's saying? Well, here's the outline. This is Paul's outline. You could use different words to say it, but he's going to talk about Israel's mission. There's a reason why Israel was Israel. God chose Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, and he made him great with descendants the sands of the seashore. God wired that up, and there's a purpose for it. So that's where Paul starts with all that history. Then he's going to describe Israel's mistake. You didn't understand. You missed your Savior, your Messiah. In fact, you worse than missed him. You rejected him. You killed him. And then finally, Israel has a moment. They're the ones that receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ if they know what to do with it. So there's a mission, there's a mistake, and there's a moment. And then we're going to see whether or not uh, our situation as Americans, do we have a mission? Uh, Have we made mistakes? Are we taking advantage of our moment? So verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. I wish I could see what that looked like and how he motioned with his hand. Um, Very demonstrative people group that used their hands to speak. This is one of the places where in extra biblical history, um, I think I mentioned this before, that there's a description of Paul and how he was a short man of, of built stature, it's described, with a beaked nose, an eyebrow that touched in the middle, a monobrow, and a scratchy voice. But then the description, whose countenance could not be determined if it was of man or of angels. Like, that's not the description I would describe of an angelic being. But this is the man who's standing, motioning with his hand, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Men of Israel is, is his recognizing the Jewish uh, among that gathering, men of privilege, covenant privilege. They had the oracles of God as they were described, scribbled in stone tablets. They had God's law. They were given the promises. These were the people of God, Hebrews in the flesh with all the tradition that went along going back from Moses through David and up until that day. But there were others there. This isn't just the same way to describe the same group, but a second time. He describes them in you who fear God. They're probably Greeks, maybe some Romans. They're attracted to the worship of one God rather than a pantheon. And I think this is mentioned. I would mention it just because that's kind of what you get when you go to church these days. There are people who were born into the church. They've been there every time the door opens. And there's probably some people who that's not the way they were raised. They're learning this from a different background. You have, and everybody in between. So there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of people there in what we're reading. Verse 17, the God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great 
during their stay in the land of Egypt. That's when they really began to multiply. If you follow the story, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. 12 sons are about to starve. They sold their brother Joseph into Egypt. He's the one that climbed the ladder and started putting away corn. He saved that family from starvation. But then the Pharaoh came and put them all under bondage. And for 400 years, they just multiplied until God brought them out under Moses' direction. This is where he starts. Um, Already in the book of Acts, we've seen Peter's preaching, Stephen's preaching, now Paul's preaching, and they all do the same thing. They start by beginning a rehearsal of the history of God's dealings with them as his chosen people. It's a topic they were all too happy to entertain. That's one thing that's good to do. If you've got to talk to a bunch of people, find where you have some common ground and start there. Because people always like to talk about themselves or hear about themselves. If you have an occasion to sit down next to some folks uh, over at the house with some of these that are doing the trades, usually it's, hey, how are you? Is my name your name? Um, I know what they're doing. Maybe they'll ask me what I do. But if you find out that you know somebody or that you've fished the same pond or eaten at the same restaurant... It's just better, isn't it? I mean, you feel like you know them and they know you. So Paul's only drawing the crowd in and assuring agreement on something. That's the thing to try to do. Find out you're on the same page, right? Do you remember the first trial sermon on a Wednesday night down here about four years and a month ago? And I actually said something about barbecue And basketball. I shot myself in both feet (laughs) with some of you and got put on a pedestal with others of you. And maybe on the different things. Okay, where do you where do you eat your barbecue and which color? And uh I, I joked about how, you know, I had asked David early in the whole thing to send me a hymnal. Melissa sent one to the house because I wanted to to know what numbers were different only to find out that it's the very same hymnal we had in Virginia, except the one here is red and the one we sang out of is light blue. I thought, should I bring my light blue hymnal and sing out of it in front of everybody or would that just destroy the whole service? You'd be watching for it. It might show up one of these Sundays if there's a good reason to. Where were we? Notice one thing in here that's also in verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Among Americans, this side of of, uh, the Reformation, election, the doctrine of the election, being chosen before the foundation of the world is probably one of the most divisive doctrines in the Reformed church. But that is one thing that Jews never had a problem with, ever. That's their whole history. Out of all the nations of the world, God chose Abraham and built a nation around him. They're chosen. God picked them. Not because they were nice. He's the one that calls them stiff-necked people. They're stubborn. Says their creator who made them. But I thought that very interesting. Nobody said, "Hmm, no, no, we chose him. (laughs) No, we're proud he chose us. So with an uplifted arm, he led them out of Egypt. And for 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, that's the ESV. If you have the ASV, 
He bare them as a nursing father. King James Version, he suffered their manners. The NIV, he endured their conduct. How many of you think any of those are positive statements? I like the ESV. Put up with them. And if somebody said, how's family doing? Oh, I've been putting up with them for 18 years now. You, you, that's not good. Well, that's what God did. Like caring for a child that can't take care of themselves, that's what these 40 years in the wilderness were like. And then after destroying nations in verse 19, he gave them their inheritance. That's the promised land. So Israel didn't win itself its independence. God gave them that independence and the promised land and drove their enemies out. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years, 400 in Egypt, 50 conquesting uh, the land. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. That's probably one of those things that he could have left unmentioned. Nobody wants to talk about the judges. That, that was the, the dark ages of their, their organization. That's where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, no different today. But Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet. He was instrumental in what happened in 21. They asked for a king. God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for about 40 years. We find that elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, actually not. It's not in Scripture. Josephus tells us that. It had always been God's intention to give Israel a king. But it was King Jesus. It was way too early. They wanted a king. The problem was they wanted to be like nations around them. And that's what God specifically said. I don't want you to be anything like the nations around you. So the people's choice was Saul. And when you get down to the next verse, and when he had removed him, so God had to get rid of the king that he gave them because he just gave them what they wanted to show them that's not really what they wanted. Then he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do my will. So David, King David, embodied all the makings of a true king. He was a shepherd. He was a soldier. He was humble. He was a statesman. All kings would come to be measured by King David. But if all the descriptions were missing, that one right there, that he was after God's heart, says more than any of the rest of it. This is the guy that was brutal when he was out on the run uh, from Saul who wanted to kill him. Uh, there were people that, that he protected. There were people that crossed him and wished they hadn't. And then there's the scandal of Bathsheba. And then the cover-up, the murder of her husband. And if that was all you knew about him, you'd think, who, who is this Jehovah God and why does he let his guys act like that but God knew something that we didn't know until he told us and that was that this man was after his heart that he wouldn't be happy with anything less than a heart relationship with the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the stuff we were singing earlier David's reading in the book of Psalms most of which were written by David poetry this bloodthirsty red-headed killer and at least one woman that he took from someone he shouldn't have. But he's a poet after God's own heart. And it's this guy, verse 23, 
God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised, of that man's offspring. Having brought his audience as far as King David, Paul now turns the hinge, bringing them immediately to King Jesus. And in verse 24 and 25, he begins to call his witnesses to the stand in support of his argument. First is John the Baptist, then the psalmist, then the prophets, specifically Isaiah and Habakkuk. That's all those little indented phrases. He's quoting all those references. Why is this important? Because what he's going to do over those quotes is to take a this, Jesus, the descendant of David, is that Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. It's the same guy. He's the one you've been looking for, for centuries, for generations. Israel's mistake is what's next. This is why it's important, because when it came, when it happened, he was rejected. Paul says, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, but because they did not recognize him, Jesus, their Messiah, as being the son of David, who is David's Lord, nor understanding the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Now, that's not uncalled for if you're one of those Jewish men of privilege sitting there listening. To hear this guy say, you missed it. Missed what? The stuff you study every week. Every week. You read these things pointing to this guy and you missed it. How could you be that blind to have missed it? Now, this is certainly uh, truncated, a summarized version of the sermon. And I wonder if Paul didn't say, and in case you're feeling a little heat with such a statement, you need to understand, I missed it too. Maybe worse than you did, because I was out trying to kill people who were preaching in his name. So he's earned the right to be able to say something sharp or abrasive or jarring or shocking as a statement like that. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they killed him for nothing, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So even pagan Roman government knew there was something wrong with the arrest and the trial, and it took some doing to convince Pilate to kill Jesus. But having done it, they couldn't do any more. He's dead. This is where they murdered their maker. And this is why I love it. It's like the sermon goes on and on. Yeah, 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 we know that, we know that. Mm, that was good, that was bad, blah, blah, blah. And then David, Jesus, you killed him, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who'd come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now witnesses to his people. Those are his disciples standing on the mountain before he went back to heaven. He said, you'll be my witnesses. Go tell everybody what I said, what I taught, what happened. That's what they're doing. And the truth is, Jesus couldn't stay dead because Jesus had never sinned. and Death was only because of sin. So what Paul is desperately trying to communicate is that if you belong to Jesus by faith, death won't have any claim on you either. In this man is your only hope, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 32 through 37, Paul quotes the second Psalm, Isaiah 55, the 16th Psalm, all for the purpose of confirming, again, this Jesus is that Messiah, same guy. So now Israel has a moment 
because Jesus' death, that rejection was a few years back. But verse 38, here's their opportunity. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. What does that mean? They'd been working for their salvation this whole time. You got to be good enough. Keep the commandments. But Paul is saying, you all know deep down, you can't keep those commandments. And if that's the standard, you all fail. But by him, this righteous man, everyone who believes, is forgiven. You disobeyed, but it's covered. But only through Jesus. So uh, this is Philip's commentary speaking. The law could not justify a guilty person. The law could corner him, convict him, condemn him, but it could never cancel his sin. How many of you have ever blown by a speed limit sign doing in excess of 10 mile an hour of the stated speed? That's what will get you caught here in this state, right? Nine, okay, eight, you're fine. Nine, it could be your machine's off a little and you're really 10 over. But how many of you have ever passed the sign faster than the sign says you can go and the sign says, I know you're having a rough day. It's all right. Go on. The law can't forgive. Uh, Even the police officer might say, oh, it looks like you're having a... Oh, it looks like you're in uh, transition. Get that girl to the hospital. It's time to go. And escort you there but then may write you up later. Who knows? That'd that'd be, you know, deputy of the year, right? The law can't forgive you. Only the one that you've offended can forgive you. The one you've offended is God, and this is his boy. And if he's satisfied with what his boy has done on your behalf, he can forgive you. That's what Paul is saying here. This moment, this moment of good news was not... Only Israel's, but everyone's, Jew, Gentile, bond, free, the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ and his death as a gift to anyone, anytime, anywhere, is, is still open. Until the trumpet sounds, we still exist in this moment. We call it the church age. So what is Paul saying by what he's saying with Israel's mission, Israel's mistake, Israel's moment? Well, let's just look at it from Israel's perspective And then we'll look at it from our perspective, do it briefly, and then we'll sing and we'll go home. But Israel's mission was spelled out in their history. It's easy enough to see, especially when you get to the covenant. Through you, I will bless the nations. If ever I'm going to get my son into this earth as a man and as God to to pay for the sins of the world, the the world's going to somehow need to know it's him, and that's why he's here. So rather than just write it in the clouds, this is my son, you know, like surrender Dorothy. Or just write down, hey, this guy died for your sins. You really are a sinner. No, he's going to do that out of this very dramatic history of a people group over millennia with, with prophecies written down that won't be fulfilled for hundreds of years that once fulfilled, people look at it and say, how in the world could they predict that future before it ever happened? Now, that's the convincing part of it. 
It's, it's so unnormal, no one would ever make it up that way. So that, that's, that was their mission, to be the people group through which God would send His only Son into the world. Why? Because He loved the world so much that He gave His Son that whosoever, whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Now, if that's Israel's mission, what, what would you say America's mission is? Go way back to the founding fathers, which is a little tougher these days because we're being told that the founding fathers were saying other things or had another agenda. Now, any time we ever wanted to put them on a pedestal and act like they'd never sinned or done anything wrong or weren't human or didn't have a desperately wicked heart within them like Jeremiah 17, 9 says they did have, then we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. But it's clear they left one nation who wouldn't let them worship God and went to a new world so they could. And a lot of this old book is in those old documents, right? Almost as if an experiment. Can one nation under God govern itself according to those principles? The jury's still out on how long that'll last. But it's pretty much unprecedented in history, except from one other group of people, God's chosen people. And you can take that comparison too far. America's not Israel. And America's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible, even in the future part of the Bible. By name, specifically, black and white, though I'm sure at some point we'll say, oh, okay, that's where we are. Maybe. None of us is going to live any longer than anyone else lives. And when it's time for us to go home, just like in Ecclesiastes, we'll we'll get that insider information we all want so bad, right? But until that point, what is our mission It was to worship God freely. Is America still known for that? For the longest time, most of the missionaries ever sent into dark places of this planet were sent from the United States of America. That's not the case anymore. There are other countries outdoing America as far as missions and evangelism. What am I trying to say? I I don't know. I'm going to just leave this open. You're smart folks. You decide. What is America's mission? I think it's to preach the gospel I was kind of envious the other day clicked on some of that stuff about the king of England now the queen having left this world and all the mentions of, of, of God and all those things that they say now I know they're more uh, liberal thinking than we are in that regard but I think that was our mission And I think we're on the precipice, if not having already made a mistake, not of rejecting Jesus, but just putting it on the back burner somewhere. Uh, Israel's mistake was rejecting their Messiah. We weren't there. That's their history. We weren't in Egypt. We weren't in the promised land. We're here in the new world. But does a nation have to be present there to reject the Lord? No, no. No more than any one of us who weren't there when Jesus was crucified can reject him anytime we want to. So that leaves us the moment. Israel's moment was to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what did Paul say? I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. I'm sent to the Jew first and then the Gentile. The Jew first because that's God's chosen people. But then I'm going to the rest of the world. 
and over and over, including right here. He says, you Jews don't want to hear it. There are plenty of Gentiles who will. And that's where we're going. So as far as America goes, maybe we want to just kind of decouple that from our nation and just talk about ourselves or wake chapel for that moment. Because one thing's true about Israel's moment regarding not the nation of Israel, but Paul the Apostle and this little handful of men and those that wrote out the New Testament. When we get to chapter 17, some angry man off the cuff is going to describe Paul and his group as those men who've turned the world upside down. In fact, that's the title of the series we're in, Acts, Turning the World Upside Down. Paul didn't need anybody to tell him what his mission was. All that took place on the road to Damascus. And he preached this until they took his head off. But here's something that, that Paul Tripp said. And here's, here's two things that I'll say about all this. I'm just going to leave Paul's sermon the way it is. He didn't give a conclusion so I'm not going to give a conclusion. I'll, I'll, I'll let the Holy Spirit conclude Paul's sermon the way he sees fit. But here's two observations as far as our contextualization of this goes. That was wasness. What about isness right here? Paul David Tripp says, Don't let satisfaction be your biggest problem. Satisfied to be mere consumers of the work of the church rather than committed participants of it. Lord, have mercy if Paul the Apostle showed up in America and had visited some of our churches. I think he'd burn them down. You guys are consumers. You're just having a good time. You're gathered around with other people who are nice like you are, but rotten on the inside like everybody else because you're sinners, but you act like you're not. And it's just to have fun or feel better or have some type of, I don't know, uh, daily affirmation or weekly affirmation from this, that, or the other. No, it's a place for you to get together and rehearse that old history that Jesus saves. He still saves. Go out and win some and bring them back in here and we'll teach them so they can do the same thing. That's what, what Paul would do. It's called turning the world upside down or your town upside down or your home upside down. So don't ever let satisfaction be your biggest problem. Because that's what happened with Israel. And there's a long passage. When you got to the place full of homes you didn't build and, and crops you didn't plant, the land of milk and honey, all you wanted to be was like everybody else that was there. You had the oracles of God, but you traded them for the paganism and idols of the world you lived in. I think there's a correlation there. And the second thing, remember Paul's approach because it needs to be our approach. His first point was to get to David, get on some place where you're on the same page, but that's only for the purpose of introducing Jesus through whom forgiveness of sins is found. There may be methods in the way we do ministry here where we'll find common ground to have a place to speak, but when we've arrived at the place to speak, we're going to speak Jesus and him crucified, and that's it, because that's where forgiveness of sins is found. Nothing else saves. And, and the world's not going to do that for any... The world doesn't have that message. The church has this message. So you'll never see Paul in the book of Acts 
saying, let me introduce you to the guy that changed my life forever. And this is the way my life was before. He does that in select little places where he's talking to people for the purpose of just saying, hey, I was a bad guy, now I'm a good guy. And that's because Jesus forgave me. Testimonies that start with I and have me's, they're kind of person-focused. Where everything Paul does is Jesus-focused. And, and it's very clear. Uh, he's, he's never going to say, here's how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's going to say, here's how Jesus Christ gives you a relationship with his Father God that you broke because you're a sinner. But because he died in your spot, those sins are forgiven. You can have that relationship back. It's not just to have a buddy named Jesus to help you look a little more moral during your miserable existence. No, this is just a blip. Eternity's to come, and it's either with him or without him. Without him, you're lost. With him, you're saved. So that's the gospel, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. Here's the reaction. Then we'll pray. That's what happened after he got done speaking. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, verse 43, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. See that order? Who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Why would they run him out? Why would the leadership get rid of Paul? Because seeing the crowds, they get filled with jealousy. Because they're not about to give over the control of all that. Why? Because they're after their own heart. Remember that King David everybody else was measured by? After God's own heart. So whenever you find in leadership within a church a man or a woman after God's own heart, put them in a place where they can teach and serve such that they make their mark on others and point toward Jesus. Like this fellow named Paul who will give every drop of everything he's got until God calls him home. Father in heaven, thank you for another installment into your word. Lord, these are big things. They're too big for us without you. Help us understand them. Help us obey them. And Lord, would you be so glorified and blessed to choose to draw us after yourself such that the same could be said. We're not faultless, we're not blameless, we're not sinless, but Lord, could, could we be after your own heart? And what difference could a church make whose congregation is after the heart of God? Lord, you do as you choose. May we be found faithful. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.